0: Alright, if you want to make your way back to your seats, <clears throat> you can, two, two things while you do that. The first is, uh, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 1. And uh, also, envision the following scenario with me. Uh, it's date night for you and your spouse. You've, you've got a babysitter who's going to watch the kid's while you, while you guys go out to, to dinner or catch a movie or whatever the case might be. And as you're getting ready to leave the house, you look at your seven, eight, nine-year-old child, and you say, while you're gone, I just want you to do two things, if you could. The first is that uh, I'd like for you to clean your room while we're gone. The second is that before you go to bed, whatever... Uh, toys or stuff you've gotten out in the living room. I'd like for you to make sure that you straighten that up before you go to bed. Can you do that? And your seven, eight, nine-year-old looks back at you and gives you a big, yes, mommy, yes, daddy, and then you head out the door. So you go, uh, you have a great date night together. You come back to the house. You're with the babysitter there at the door, and the babysitter heads out, and you look into your house, and there is your seven- or eight-year-old child not asleep. But the good news is that they're holding this little uh, bouquet of flowers that you immediately wonder, where did those come from? And you also look beyond your six, seven, eight, nine-year-old child and see the living room is a mess. Looks like a tornado ran through. And so you have a conversation with uh, your child. You're very thankful for the flowers. You're trying to be as appreciative as you can because that is a very nice gesture from, uh, from a young one. And you get to the end of that conversation of telling them that you just really love those flowers and they're beautiful and thank you for picking those. Um, and you also kind of think to yourself, well, if I did tell them to sh- straighten the room before bedtime, I guess never went to bed, it might be understandable that the living room hasn't been straightened up yet. So you ask, Did you clean your room? And your very savvy seven-year-old child says, look at these flowers. (laughs) And you say, why don't we walk down and take a look? So you walk down the hall and you open up the bedroom uh, door and you look in and the bedroom has not been cleaned either. And this is the situation you now have on your hands. You have a child who has been uh, very loving and even very joyful in their loving and picking the flowers, but they've also been disobedient. You're trying to figure out, how am I going to handle the fact that this act of the flowers was very kind and very sweet, and we're probably going to put them you know, on the kitchen table, and they're going to last for a few days, but at the same time, I, I didn't ask for flowers, but I did ask for something. What did you ask for? clean room and a straightened up living room, right? So there's been this very sweet, very loving, disobedient child. I want you to hold that image in your mind. And I kind of want to make two prefacing statements before we jump in this morning. The first is that I think at times we, we in the American church are setting ourselves up for a moment. Where we are going to stand before the Lord, forgiven, justified, redeemed, atoned for, like we've talked about in the book of Romans. And we're going to have something in our hand. I went to church every weekend, I read my Bible some days. And He's going to look at us, and He's going to say, But I asked you for something specific. I gave you a specific command. I asked you to bring me the nations. You brought me some flowers, which is very kind. But I asked you for something different. I want you to hold that in your mind. The other thing I want you to hold in your mind is the fact that I'm going to make some sweeping generalizations. I've already made one. And our flesh's, our heart's response when somebody makes a large, sweeping generalization is that we thank to ourselves, absolutely for the person next to me and all these other people in here, but I am definitely the exception to that generalization, no matter what the generalization is. So as I continue to make some of these, I want you to take honest look at yourself and ask, am I within the generalization honestly or... Maybe realistically, at times, you could be outside. I realize that they're generalizations. I want you to do those two things, because what we're going to do this morning is that we're going to push pause on our series in Romans for the first time. If you've been with us uh, since January, you know we're walking through the book of Romans. Kurt just wrapped up chapter 4 last week, and what we're doing over the course of this year is that we're kind of clarifying who we are as a church. We are building devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And we're clarifying exactly what that devoted follower is. We've got five terms. They're represented by those five little symbols there at the bottom of the screen. A devoted follower of Jesus Christ is gospel-centered, is humbly unified, is mission-driven, pursuing holiness and making disciples. And so through the book of Romans, we're talking about what it means to have a life that's centered on the gospel. We're going to spend the next three weeks, though, talking about what mission-driven means. And there's a reason for that, why we're putting that here, and I'll explain here in just a minute. But over the next three weeks, here's how this is going to play out. I'm going to introduce this and talk about just what does that phrase mean? What what do we mean when we talk about being mission-driven? And then I'm going to kind of turn it over to the experts for two weeks, and Joe Stewart, our missions pastor, is going to talk about why we would be mission-driven. He's going to do that next week. And then the third week, a man named Dale Loesch, who is the... um, CEO, the founder of an organization called CrossWorld that is a sending agency, a missionary sending agency here in Kansas City. He's going to talk about how we do that during the third week. So uh, we're going to kind of reverse engineer basically the book of Romans to where we are up to this point in order to see what does it mean to be mission driven. Before we jump in, let's pray and then we'll get going. God, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for the chance to gather together and to worship and to praise you and to sing the truths of the gospel. God, thank you for the opportunity to open your word and learn and grow together. God, thank you, most importantly, for the opportunity to live in relationship with you. God, I pray this morning that your spirit would come into this place and speak not just to our minds, Lord, but directly to our hearts about what it means to be driven by your mission in this world. God, I pray that you would, by your spirit, take what we talk about this morning and over the next three weeks, God, and you would press it far beyond the realm of intellectual understanding and deeply into the very core of who we are as followers of Jesus. God, I pray that we would be people who center our lives upon the truth of the gospel and that we would be people Who, because of that centering, God, are driven to partner with you in your mission in this world, Lord. Would your spirit do that work among us as a body? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's where I want to start. Unfortunately, all too often, and it can be intentional or it can be completely unintentional, but all too often we make the gospel an end point. I'll show you what I mean by walking forward through Romans what we've talked about already. Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 4. Paul starts by uh, making this statement, a prolonged statement, about the fact that all of humanity is stained by the presence of sin, that it runs through each and every one of us. Two summarizing verses for that. If you look down at Romans 1.21, the the core of the issue is, is that though they, humanity, knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. And that leads to something, Romans 1:29, if you scan down. They, humanity, they are filled with all unrighteousness. Because that stain and that sin runs through all of humanity, And everybody's equally guilty in that. No one has any place to judge. That's the beginning of Romans chapter 2. Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourselves, since you, the judge, do the same things. There is one, though, God, who can judge. And the basis of his judgment is objective truth. Romans 2, 2. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on truth. And then in the kind of the back half of chapter 2, starting in 14 and working all the way down to verse 29, Paul states that our guilt is verified both by the conscience of any individual, you know that you've not been perfect, Paul says, but it's also verified and demonstrated by the obvious shortcomings that anyone might have in relation to God's law. And ultimately, no one will be able to escape God's universally just and and obvious pronouncement of our guilt. Romans 2.11, for there is no favoritism with God. Equal guilty footing before the Lord. And the great and final pronouncement of that guilt, if you flip over or scan down to Romans chapter 3, comes beginning in verse 10, where Paul brings in the words of God himself to pronounce this unequivocal sort of guilt Due to the sin of all of humanity, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. And kind of in the weightiness of that, Paul breaks through with the glorious, marvelous, beautiful truth and hope of the gospel. Romans three twenty one. But now... Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, since there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as an atoning sacrifice in His blood, received through faith. Hallelujah. Despite the guilt... The grace of God has made it possible for humanity to be redeemed and justified and to have their sin atoned for in His sight, to have the debt of their sin fully paid by Jesus Christ. And no one can boast about it, Paul says at the end of chapter 3, because it's entirely by God's grace. You've done nothing to earn it. In fact, you've done everything to not earn it. In Romans Chapter four, he says, Abraham and David and all of the Old Testament scripture attest to this reality of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And then he ends where Kurt ended us last week with this incredible summary statement at the end of chapter four, starting in verse 22. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness, but it was not credited, or now it was credited to him was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Praise the Lord, right? I mean, that is the good news of the gospel. (laughs) He was delivered up for our trespasses. He was raised for our justification. We can stand before the Lord innocent despite the guilt of our sin because we've been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we get to that spot, unfortunately, and all too often we say, that's the end. I've arrived. I've made it to the logical end point of this entire discussion about God and my problems. That they can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. And we just want to stay there as if there's this one segment in our life that maybe you would consider the spiritual side of your life, or there's this one part in your life, there's one little corner that you would consider the religious part of you that's made it to the right endpoint and therefore can just stop and park itself there. But that's not what Scripture has to say. That's not what the whole of the Bible has to say about stepping into relationship with the Lord. That's not what the whole of the Bible has to say about what God is attempting to do in this world. And that's not what any of the lives of the great saints of the Old and the New Testament and of the church throughout history have to show us. So let's work through what the realities are. If this is the unfortunate falsification of the gospel, there's a new word, uh, let's talk about what's reality one reality is that the gospel is not an end point, it is a center point. In one sense, the gospel is the center point of all humanity. It's literally the moment by which all of human history hinges, BC, AD. But in another sense, it's the very center point on which all of your life should hinge. See this in Paul. Let me walk backwards now, look back down at Romans. Paul believed at the very center of his being that salvation was by faith alone, Romans 4. Paul believed at the very center of his being that God had made that salvation available by his grace alone. That by God's grace, Jesus had been sent to the earth in order to be our justification, our redemption, our atoning sacrifice, the crown jewel and the display of God's glory in all of the earth. Romans 3, 21 to 25. Paul believed to the very center of his being that all humanity needed that justification and redemption and atonement, because all of humanity was equally guilty before God, Romans 3:10 to 18. Paul believed to the very center of his being that our conscience and our actions would prove us to be guilty of sin in the day of judgment, and that that would be true for everyone, Romans 2:11. There's no favoritism with God. Paul believed to the very center of his being that the stain of sin was present within each and every human being that had ever taken a breath on this earth. Romans 1, 18 down to 32. Paul believed to the very core of who he was that fundamental to the existence of all of humanity is the reality that we do not glorify God as we ought to. Paul believed at the very center of his being that because of these realities, Romans 1:18, it was absolutely right and just for God's wrath to be revealed from heaven. And not only that, but for it to be poured out upon any and all who would stand before him marked by the presence of their sin-stained and glory-denying flesh. Paul built the activity of his life from the moment of his salvation till the moment of his death on those realities. If all of these things are true, then it demands something. What Paul believed, what he knew to be true, influenced what he did. That's the essence of what it means to be gospel-centered. To be gospel-centered means that the gospel forms the core of your understanding of who God is and how you engage in all of life's situations. It means that the gospel's implications are true not only in your beliefs, but also in your actions and your behaviors. And maybe the primary danger of existing with this notion that the gospel, that the cross is like this end point that you arrive at, is that it causes your life and your Christian living to become almost this entirely inward-looking aspect of your life, that you come to church and you think about what all of this stuff has to do with you and you alone. Because I've arrived at the end. There's nothing else for me here. I've done the thing that the Bible says I was supposed to do. Period at the end of the sentence. I'll show up in church every, you know, 7 days. I'll give 2 hours of my time to that and I'll leave the train parked in the station. That is nowhere near what the whole of scripture has to say about what it means to follow Jesus. It's certainly not the example of Paul's life. If the gospel is your center point, then all of your life revolves around it. Nothing is free from the light of the gospel. Like the earth revolving around the sun, all of who you are orbits around the gospel. How you make decisions, how you interpret the truth how you set up your priorities, what you do with your time, the way you spend your money, how you think about the people around you, and maybe, most importantly this morning, crucial for today, how you think about your purpose on this planet. If the gospel were an end point, what would happen when you place your faith in it? If God had intended the the gospel to just be the arrival moment for all of humanity, when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you would just be taken to be with Him. That'd be it. I've made it. Take me home. Let me be with Jesus. But you're still here. I don't think that means no one's saved. And I'm still here. I hope that means I'm not saved. Not not saved. That's a double negative. Paul became a believer on the road to Damascus. He interacted with Jesus there. He believed in who he was, and yet his life went on for a long time. The Bible paints this picture of the life of a follower of Jesus as revolving around the gospel, that it's this center point that anchors you into one place, that it influences all that you do in life. But not just that, because the gospel is not only a center point, it's also a launching pad. The logical question is we're working backward in Romans here, and we've arrived at Romans 1:18, is, OK, so what does that mean? If all of these should form this core of who we are and how we function and how we operate, what does that actually mean for us? Well, let's keep going backwards. Remember how Paul began the letter. Look at Romans 1:1. His name, and then three statements. A servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. If you were here when we opened up this series and looked at Romans 1, verse 1, we talked about removing the cultural baggage that we have around the idea of a slave. That what your Bible translate as servant or bond servant is actually the word slave in Greek but your English translation doesn't use that because we carry a lot of cultural junk into the notion of slavery given our history. Take all of that away or approach it from the idea of a servant and answer this question. What does a servant's world, what does a slave's world revolve around? Say it out loud. The master. The the master's longings the master's desires, what the master wants done, what the master needs to happen, the extension of the master's name into whatever world he's seeking to impact. And so what has the King of Kings, what's the Lord of Lords, what is the capital M master been doing since the fall of humanity in the garden? He's been displaying his glory through the redemption of humanity. He's been unfolding the reality of the gospel and he has a desire for that message to be made known to all the nations, all peoples to the ends of the earth. And so how does Paul describe himself as set apart for the gospel? That's who I am, Paul says. It's at the center of who I am. It's also it set me apart and launched me into something. What is it launched him into? Jump down to verse 13. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you, but was prevented until now in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I have had among the rest of the Gentiles. I am obligated, both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's what Paul's been launched into. I must tell you. You have to know. Because he believes that everything in Romans 1:18 down to 32 is true. He believes that what God says in Romans 3:10 uh, down to 18 is true, but he also believes that Romans 3:21 and 25 is true. And that Romans 4 is true. And so he can't help but share the message. He can't help but be faithful. He's compelled toward it. It drives him. He's motivated by it. Well, to be faithful to what? The master's passion. The master's passion is laid out clearly in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. We could just look at that and then look at the New Testament and we could say to ourselves first, and maybe most obviously, Paul was simply obedient. He did exactly what he was commanded to do. He was educated in the Scriptures. He Had heard clearly of the life and the teachings of Jesus, he knew that God's desire was for all the nations of the earth to receive the blessing of salvation through Jesus Christ and that that would bring glory to the Father. You're educated. You don't need me to stand up here and tell you, as followers of Jesus, that you're supposed to share the gospel. You know that. You don't need me to stand up here and point out that Paul shared the gospel. You know that. Here's a sweeping generalization. We are educated, knowledgeable, far beyond our obedience. Well beyond it. It's as if, in the American church... Mom came to you before date night and said, I want you to clean your room. And your seven-year-old self responded back, tell me what clean means in the original language. Well, okay. I want you to like pick up the toys and get them into the box and I want you to get all your clothes off the floor. I'd like for you to take the water cup that we brought in last night and get it back into the kitchen. I'd also like for you to straighten up the living room. Exactly where's the living room? What are the boundaries of the living room? And mom spelled out exactly what she meant by straightening up the living room. And she left and she came back, and you were standing there with flowers. Well educated. The education is not the issue, the obedience is. But simple obedience doesn't even paint the entire picture for Paul, and it shouldn't paint the entire picture for us either. Because secondarily, Paul's life and his example and the examples from throughout Scripture and throughout church history is not merely one of obedience. It's a picture of what it is to be driven by the mission of God to share the message of the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ with all people. I think we have this idea that one day Paul woke up and he had this thought to himself. I think I'll write the New Testament today. And he walked out to his desk and he sat down with a yellow legal pad and he began to write. No, these are real letters. The Gospels are passionate accounts of who Jesus is. The writers of the New Testament deeply, deeply desired for everyone in the world to understand the reality of Jesus Christ. And so they wrote, and they shared, and they explained, and they detailed who he was. Paul traveled because he so urgently wanted everyone to hear the gospel. He had a vision in mind for exactly what heaven would be like if it were filled with people from every tribe, nation, and tongue worshiping at the throne. And he didn't just say, I'm supposed to work toward that. He said, I get to. And so he did. I get to, by faith, partner with the Lord in taking the message of the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ to every tribe, nation, and tongue. In fact, we're going to get to Romans 15 at the end of this letter, and Paul's going to say very clearly that his ambition is to preach the gospel where it's never been heard before. I don't want to go somewhere and build on a foundation that already exists. I want to go to people who have no idea about the gospel, and I want to share it with them. He was driven by the mission of the Lord. So, on the one hand, you are not exempt from obedience to the Great Commission. You're not. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, it applies to you. But on the other hand, you get to take part. It's a joy and a privilege that the Lord would count you worthy to partner with Him in the sharing of His glory to the ends of the earth. Lottie Moon says it this way, How many are there who imagine that because Jesus paid it all, they need pay nothing, forgetting that the prime object of their salvation was that they should follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ in bringing back a lost world to God? The gospel isn't an end point. It's a launching pad, and what it launches you into is partnership with the Lord and making the message of the gospel known to the ends of the earth. It's a center point. It's a launching pad. The gospel is not an end point. It's at least one other thing, though, in our context this morning, and that is that it is an entryway. I want to preview where we're headed next in Romans after these three weeks. So if you'll flip over to Romans chapter 5 and look at the first two verses with me. Paul says, therefore, and what is he referring back to? Well, everything he's written so far, because of all of these truths, since you have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Having placed your faith in Jesus, you haven't arrived at an end point. You've stepped through an entryway. And that entryway is that into access to the Father. It's into the very real presence of His kingdom. You've walked through that door by faith. You have grace to stand in. You have hope to rejoice in how dare you hoard it? Because you know what's on the other side of that doorway that you just stepped through? What's on the other side of the doorway that's given you access into the grace that you now stand in? On the opposite side of that doorway is only judgment. Eternal judgment. If you've centered your life on the gospel, then you know these things to be true. If you've centered your life on the gospel, then you've then it's launched you into service to the king for the good of his mission. And if you've centered your life on the gospel, then you are to start inviting people through that entryway and into the grace of the kingdom of God. People need that invitation. Look, if the the royals came to you tomorrow and they said, hey, here are all the tickets to opening day. You can just do with them as you please. And you took that giant stack of tickets and you thought to yourself, I'm going to this baseball game. This is going to be absolutely amazing. And you told no one you'd be there by yourself. You've got to let someone know. You've got to tell someone so that they can join you. Right. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that God is totally constrained by our obedience to share the message of the gospel, but I am saying that we are the normative way by which the message of the gospel, the glory of God's work through Jesus Christ, is supposed to make it to all peoples on the face of this planet. There are nations and people and countries where... Uh, their government has closed that country off to the entrance of missionaries and it's hard for the gospel to expand and praise the Lord, people are having visions and dreams and they're coming to real faith in Jesus Christ. But you and me and every other person who's placed their faith in Christ, we're supposed to be the primary means by which that message makes it to the ends of the earth. And so I have a question for you. I actually have two questions. Two questions. The first is, are you trying to outsource that responsibility? Do you think to yourself, there's a hired gun who stands up on Sunday morning and he does the work of explaining the gospel? Do you think to yourself, our church has some missionaries and we've sent them to the nations Therefore, by proxy, I have fulfilled my portion of the Great Commission. Are you trying to outsource that responsibility? And as you think to yourself, well, the person next to me is probably, definitely probably outsourcing. Let me ask the question in another way. When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone that you know is not saved? I can tell you what the data says. The most recent studies say that less than 2% of born-again Christians share the message of the gospel after the first year of coming to salvation. So of the roughly 1,000 people who filtered in here today, 20 would have shared that after the first year of their salvation. Millions of people around the world are unknowingly unreached and unengaged by the gospel, while millions of Christians, particularly American Christians, are intentionally disengaged from the commission to share it. Right here in our own country, millions of people are unsaved. Your friends, your co-workers, your family members, the people on your sports teams or your kids' sports teams are in the band with you, are in class with you. And let's just set aside the idea of going to a foreign country. 98% plus of American Christians aren't even willing to take that to the message of the person next door, or to take the message of that to the person next door. When I was at the University of uh, Missouri, there are these secret societies. uh, And there's this tap day ceremony where The new inductees into these societies are kind of brought out into this area on campus, and it's kind of weird like they're wearing hoods, and it's like this weird thing. But they, they take off the hoods, and it becomes known who's in the secret society. At some point within that process, you get tapped, and they let you know that you've been invited to be a part of that. Entryway into the kingdom is not a secret society. In fact, the doorway of access to the Lord should be the worst kept secret in all of human history. As followers of Jesus, we're supposed to be going to the nations and blowing open the one door by which humanity can step into right relationship with the Lord. There's only one doorway into that kingdom, but it should be wide open for everyone. John Piper says this, God is pursuing with omnipotent passion a worldwide purpose of gathering joyful worshipers for Himself from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue. He has inexhaustible enthusiasm for the supremacy of His name among the nations. Therefore, let us bring our affections into line with His, and for the sake of His name, let us renounce the quest for worldly comforts and join in His global purposes. Over the next three weeks, what I'm definitely not trying to set up is a three-week you know, succession of time together where you think to yourself, I just need to go from here and try a little bit harder at this whole evangelism missions thing. Because if that is what you walk away with, that will last within you for a couple of weeks and then we'll be back into the same place that most of us exist within. Instead, what we're trying to do is understand reality. And the reality is that if you're not interested in sharing particularly, if you would fall into the 98% of American Christians who don't share their faith, I would challenge you to to seriously consider what is at the center of who you are. At the very core of who you are, If you were to strip away all the excesses and just get down to the irreducible center of who you are as a person, what's there? Is it the gospel? Is it some form of the American dream? Is it a desire for a life of ease and comfort? Some longing to protect your own sense of personal safety? An image that you have in your mind of happiness? Is it a particular number that rests at the bottom of the bank account statement? And maybe that's a hard question for you to to drill down to right now. I think you could find the answer by doing a simple activity over the course of the next week. At the end of the day, make a list of the things you did. And after you've made that list, go item by item and next to it, write down the reason why you did it. Why did I do that thing? What motivated me to do that? Over the course of a week, I think you would see certain themes begin to express themselves, and I think those themes would illuminate what's at the center of who you are. What drives forward the things that you do? Maybe the issue is that you feel like, you know, I'm centered, Tim. I've been. I understand that I've been launched. I just don't know how to fly the rocket once it's off the ground. I need some tools. That's what that March 24th No Place Left training is for. If you feel like I've stepped through the entryway, I am centered on the gospel, I'm trying to figure out what it means to be launched into a life of being driven by the mission of God in this world, I just need a little help and some tools, you need to get yourself to that training. And I understand it's five hours and that's a long time for Americans to set aside on a Saturday. But you need to make the space for it. Because standing before the Lord with some flowers and a, I didn't really understand how to do the thing you asked, also isn't going to be ideal. I want to finish with that opening illustration. You know what you want from your child when you come home from date night. You want a clean room. The flowers are fantastic but a clean room was what you were after. We're educated people. The Bible literally tells us Matthew 28, 18 to 20 is the great commission. We know what the Lord desires. We know what heaven is going to entail, that the sound in heaven is going to be every tribe, every nation, every tongue lifting up glorifying praise to Him. And that that's what he is passionate about, bringing to himself from among the nations. And we can either continue to live our life ignoring that command, or we can join with the Lord in pursuing that purpose. We can either stand in front of him with flowers when he asked for the nations. Or we can stand in front of him and humbly say, I gave my life to bring as many people as I could to throw open the doorway as wide as I could. Brian, you guys can come up. I was on a plane back home from Florida last night, um, and it wasn't a full flight, and I knew that because I had boarding pass B30, and there was no one behind me. And so I'm walking into the plane, and I thought to myself, you know what, I'm just going to take the first aisle seat that I come to, um, so long as there's not a person in the middle. And so I walked a few rows back, and I found a seat, and there was a man sitting against the window, on the the window seat. And he was turned around talking to the row behind him in Spanish. And he's talking to his wife and what appeared to be his wife, a young daughter and a teenage son. And in my tired, it was kind of a a long and draining week, in my tired, flesh, uh, sin-stained state, I thought to myself, I'm not going to have to talk to him because he doesn't speak English. And so what I did was I got out my big, over-the-ear, noise-canceling, please-don't-talk-to-me headphones. I put them on, and we took off. And it was a very turbulent flight. And so multiple times, uh, in fact, all throughout the flight, uh, the the pilot kept coming on and saying, no one can stand up. Like, the stewardesses never even came and served, you know, beverages and snacks. And at one point in the flight... Uh, I've got a book out, I'm trying to read among all the bouncing, I've got my music going. The guy, a couple rows in front of me, stands up and tries to walk down the aisle, and like the whole plane like gasped, like, what is he doing? Um, and I put my book down on the tray table in front of me. And on the back jacket of my book, at one point down uh, the writing there, in pretty big letters, it said, Jesus Christ. And I feel a tap on my arm while I'm watching this man who's defying the captain's orders. And I look over, and the man sitting in the window seat says, Jesus Cristo. And no habla español here, <laughs> but I had a pretty good idea what he was saying, and so I look back at him and I said, see. Sí. And we kind of just looked at each other for a minute. And I'm thinking, dear Jesus, I have no way to have this conversation. I hope he speaks some English if he's about to ask me a question. And instead, he looks at me with the biggest smile on his face. And again, I don't know Spanish, but he says to me, amo a Jesu and I know enough French to know that amo means love. And with a big smile on his face, he said, I love Jesus Christ. And I looked back at him with tears welling up in my eyes and I said, I love Jesus Christ too. I'm not 100% sure, what language we're going to be singing when we gather around the throne in heaven for all of eternity, but I'm 100% certain that all of the languages are going to be present. And we might be singing in one sort of new heaven, new earthy kind of language that we all understand, or in that moment, we might be lifting praises in every language. And I don't want to wait for that moment to understand that God was drawing all the peoples to himself. As Christians, we should want to be, we should long to be, we should give our lives to be part of a movement of people who go to the nation so that we can hear Amo a Jesu Christo today rather than just waiting to hear it in eternity. I don't want to wait until I'm around the throne in heaven to be tapped on the arm by a man who looks at me in Swahili and with a big smile on his face says the equivalent of I love Jesus Christ. If the gospel's at the center of who we are, then we are to be driven to take that message to the ends of the earth, here and now, today. That's what it is to be mission driven. Let's sing together. Go ahead and stand.